The following sermon was preached in the Sunday gathering of First Baptist Church of Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. We pray it bears fruit in your life, and we hope that you share it with others who might also benefit. At the same time, if you're not already, we encourage you to join a faithful local church where you can sit under the preaching of God's word and observe the ordinances. Visit firstbaptistwr.com for more information. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would make us attentive to your words here in this book. I pray that you would make my words clear and effective, that you would build up this church through this word this morning. Please be with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis, we saw that God made man to have dominion over the earth and to rule over it as his representative. He made man to be fruitful and multiply and extend God's righteous rule over the whole earth through their offspring. But Adam sinned, and in him all mankind sinned with him. And the world which was at rest and peace and righteousness fell into chaos and disorder. Adam's offspring could not restore order. They couldn't bring righteousness and peace because they were born sinners, just like their father. But God, in His grace, promised mankind His Son, born of a woman who would defeat sin and the serpent and restore order and peace, like it had when God created it good in the first place. Abraham was called out of paganism in a foreign land, but he was buried in the promised land as a stranger. Israel was exiled to Egypt, God delivered them through Moses, but neither he nor the one who came after him, Joshua, was able to give Israel lasting rest and peace. And in the time of the judges, we saw that Israel would obey as long as the judge was alive, but once he died, they would fall back into their sin. They were unable to drive out their enemies, and their enemies became a snare to them and seduced them to bow down to other gods. We saw last week that Israel was on a downward spiral. They were in a tailspin. And they even committed the perverse acts of Sodom by the end of the book. And the author of Judges summed up their plight with the continual refrain, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, Israel desperately needed God to send that promised son, that promised offspring, to end their sin, to deliver them once and for all. They needed a king to bring them that rest and peace, to restore order to the world, to reconcile them to God. They needed that promised son, the king, to come. The book of Samuel opens with a familiar-sounding story. There's a man named Elkanah and his wife, Hannah, and Hannah is unable to bear children. 1 Samuel 1, verse 6 says the Lord had closed her womb. And this grieved Hannah, and Hannah was in distress. She was desperate for a son. She pleaded with God. She prayed earnestly and vowed that if the Lord would give her a son 
She would dedicate him to the Lord for his whole life. The priest Eli blesses her, and the Lord answers her prayer. The Lord gives her a son whom she names Samuel. Now, when you hear that story of a barren woman unable to give birth, who suddenly is miraculously able to give birth by God's grace, that should start to ring a bell. You should start to think, where have I heard something like this before? It is an echo of something that happened previously in Scripture. If you remember, Sarah was also unable to bear a child. They were promised a son. Sarah was unable to have a child, even until she was 90 years old. She laughed when the Lord said that she would give birth. So there's a recurring pattern here of birth and life coming out of what was thought to be barren. And it's also foretelling what's going to come to pass after this with the miraculous birth of Christ from Mary, who had never known a man. But Sarah gave birth to Isaac, the son of promise. And here Hannah is barren, unable to have children, but the Lord gives her a son, Samuel, in answer to her prayer. So if you're ever tempted to doubt that God hears prayer, that he might answer your prayer, look to the example of Hannah here. She pleads with reverence, she prays fervently, and she prays to the end that God would be glorified. She wants a son so she can dedicate him to the Lord and to his service, that God would be exalted through her son. She's not praying just for her own ends. She wants this son for the sake of God, for the sake of his name. And God grants Hannah's request. So church, I've said this before, pray big prayers. God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Pray that God's name would be hallowed in the earth, that our mission would advance, that we would make disciples in this town, that God would draw people to himself through us, through our efforts, that he would open doors for us to share the gospel. That those who are far from God would incline their hearts toward him. That their hearts would become a seedbed ready to hear that seed of the word. Those are the kind of prayers, big prayers. Now this son comes by a gracious miracle of God in response to prayer. And he's devoted to the Lord from birth. And this son, Samuel, will be the next leader in Israel. And once Samuel's old enough to be weaned, from the time he's weaned, he goes and serves at the tabernacle with the priest Eli. Now to this point, we've seen echoes and hints that a king would come. But here, this promise of a king starts to come to the forefront more and more. Hannah, just before she leaves, as she's leaving, her son there, who she dedicated to the Lord, she's going to leave him there. She sings a song. And oftentimes these songs are very important in Scripture. They're prophetic of what is going to come about after this. She sings that the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So she's speaking about a king. She's speaking about an anointed one, a Messiah, you might say. She speaks as if God has his king picked out already and he's going to give him strength, exalt his horn. The book of Judges implied Israel needed a king. There was no king in Israel. 
And here in the first pages of Samuel, the promise of a king is coming into the forefront. The Bible is one unified story, like a novel. It's telling one story from front to back. A king is coming. Israel needs a king in Judges. Next book, Samuel. God's promising a king. He's talking about a king who is to come. The son to come is a king to come. So this promise of a son is unfolding. It's developing more and more throughout Scripture. So we know what to expect of God's promise. And so at this point in the story, we might be asking, is Samuel the son? Is he the one promised? He comes about by a miraculous way. Is Samuel the one who will give Israel rest? We have to listen to the rest of the story to find out. Samuel goes to minister at the tabernacle from his youth with Eli the priest. And Eli is a heavy man, Scripture says. Makes this point very clear. Eli is heavy. And his two sons, his fellow priests, are corrupt. Scripture is clear. It says they did not know the Lord. They were serving as priests, but they did not know the Lord. Eli's sons even have sexual relations with the women when they come to offer sacrifices at the tabernacle. And they also would uh, dig into the sacrifices. When the people would bring their sacrifices, they'd dig their tongs in and take out all the best parts of the meat and have it for themselves, which were supposed to be offered up to the Lord. And so in doing so, they show no honor to the Lord. They despise his sacrifices. Really, they're acting like pigs here. They're making themselves fat and weighty at the expense of the Lord's honor. The Lord says to Eli, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel? So they're hoarding these offerings for themselves, making themselves heavy and fat with the things that are supposed to be to the Lord's honor. They're stealing weight and honor from God and lording it to themselves. And these are the priests who are supposed to be teaching Israel what it means to follow the Lord. They're supposed to be teaching his commands to the people. The Lord confronts Eli, saying he's honoring his sons over the Lord. He won't correct his sons. He, shouldn't, he, he has not removed them from the priesthood, as he should if they refuse to repent. And the Lord says he's honoring his sons. He's not honoring the Lord in this. Now, these men are not faithful priests. We've already seen that Israel needs a faithful king, we're also seeing here that they need a faithful priest. And these sinful priests must be judged and put aside. So the Lord says in chapter 2, verse 34, both of Eli's sons will die in one day. And in verse 35, he promises, Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is right in my heart and in my mind. So this is a contrast with judges. And judges, everyone's doing whatever's right in their own eyes. Here God promises a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart, what's in my mind. This priest is going to do what is right in God's eyes. 
in contrast to what Israel is doing in the book of Judges. And the Lord says he will build this faithful priest a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. So this book sets us up with the expectation of a coming king, the expectation of a coming priest. And we're already looking for a prophet like Moses. So we're looking for a prophet, a priest, and a king to come who's going to set things right, who will deliver Israel from their enemies. And as these sinful priests show, Israel's greatest enemy is not those out there. It's their own sin. It's the sin within the nation itself. But Samuel is not like these other priests. Samuel is faithful. And the Lord makes himself known to Samuel. And the text says he establishes Samuel as a prophet in Israel. In the meantime, Eli's sons die in battle with the Philistines, just like the Lord had said. And when Eli, their father, hears the news, and he hears that the ark of the Lord has been captured, Scripture says he hears it, and he falls backward off of his chair and lands on his head, and he breaks his neck, and he dies. And Scripture said the reason that he broke his neck and dies is because he was old and heavy. That word for heavy is kavod, which means honor or glory, weight. It's this poetic justice here. He had made himself heavy at the expense of the Lord. And the Lord's justice is that he be slain by his own weight, his own glory that he'd glorified himself with in taking the best of the offerings for himself. And so his own weight snaps his neck. The stolen glory is what kills him. So be careful in your Christian life. We should learn something from Eli here. We should not take justification, peace in the blood of Christ as a license to sin. We should not rob God of his glory. We should seek to honor God's law, to submit ourselves to God's law and obey him. And in our worship, not to take honor and glory from God, but to honor God with our sacrifices, to praise Him in our worship. We should not treat ministry or worship as a light thing. It should not become a law unto ourselves. 1 Samuel 2.30 gives a key theme to this book. The Lord says, Those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, shall be lightly esteemed. should honor the Lord. Christ died for us. We should live to honor him who died for us and was raised. With Eli dead, Samuel is the leader of Israel and he judges them. But when he's old at the end of his ministry, Israel comes to him and they ask him for a king in chapter 8. When they ask for a king, Samuel is displeased, and God is also displeased. They might ask why. There's other places before this where it shows that Israel should be expecting a king. There is a king to come. So why this displeasure with this? The crux of the issue here seems to be that in verse 5, Israel specifically asks for a king to judge them like the nations. Israel is supposed to be different 
from the nations. They're supposed to be distinct. They're supposed to be holy to the Lord. And here they are asking for a king to judge them like all the nations. And so a king like the nations is what the Lord is going to give them in Saul. He will not serve them, but he'll lord it over them. God says to Samuel, they've not rejected you as king over them, but they've rejected me as their king. The Lord was to be their king, but they wanted a king like all the nations. Samuel warns them, God tells him to warn them about the kind of king they're going to have. He says the king is going to take off your sons and daughters to war. He says you will take up to 10% of all that you own and you will be his slaves. Samuel warns them of this, but they just want, to king, want a king to rule over them like all the nations. Remember again that Israel is to be holy to the Lord, but they want to be like the nations. And Saul is a king like the nations. He's handsome, he's a head taller than anyone else. He's the guy you would pick out of a lineup to be your king. He looks like a king. But Saul is not the king that Israel needs. He leads them to victory over the enemy king, Nahash, when the spirit of the Lord rushes on him. Saul crushes him. But Saul is not the king Israel needs. He becomes desperate one day in battle, and he offers an unauthorized sacrifice to the Lord, which the Lord did not command him to do. And Samuel tells him that this sin will cost him the kingdom. The kingdom is going to be taken from Saul. Chapter 13, verse 14. Samuel says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So Saul was the king who was right in Israel's eyes. He was a head taller than everyone else. Looked like a king. He was the king they wanted. But David, after him, will be the man who is right in God's eyes. And we'll see that just as Israel has gone from bad to worse in Judges, so the king that they want, Saul, he's going to go from bad to worse in this book. He loses his mind eventually. There's another battle where Saul again despises the Lord's commands. He neglects to utterly destroy the enemy. The Lord says, go up, utterly destroy this enemy, take vengeance on them. Wipe everything out, leave nothing breathing, as he said in Joshua. But Saul doesn't do that. He keeps back the best plunder for himself. He keeps back all the choicest things. And he does not kill Agag, the enemy king. Chapter 15, verse 9 says, Everything good they kept and did not destroy, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Saul seems to be making the same mistake as Eli. He's not honoring, the, honoring God, he's honoring himself. He's taking glory for himself. He's keeping back the best things for himself rather than offering them up to the Lord. It's like he's got a box of Lucky Charms and he's eating all the marshmallows and leaving God the cereal. And Samuel confronts him But he says, well, 
I was going to sacrifice the marshmallows later. I promise. I was going to sacrifice them later. Samuel is not convinced. Samuel tells Saul that to obey is better than sacrifice. Now, we can have the same temptation in our Christian life. God says not to do something, but you're tempted to do it. Satan makes that sin look good. Satan will tell you that's a delicious apple pie right there. God says you can't have it, but that's because he's keeping something good from you. Doesn't that look delicious? And it looks like an apple pie. You think it's filled with caramel and cinnamon and apples. But then when you go to bite into it, that promise is empty. You bite into it and you find out it's made out of roadkill possum. And it's disgusting. And you immediately regret it. You might look at that sin like Saul looked at that loot and you say, oh, that looks good. Nobody's going to see. It's just a small compromise. It'll be okay. God will understand. We all sin from time to time. And I can make up for it. Sure, this is wrong, but I've served God for a long time. I'm the king. I'll smooth things over. But God is never pleased with this kind of scheming around his laws. To obey is better than sacrifice. And in chapter 15, verse 23, Samuel says that the Lord has rejected Saul for that offense. The kingdom is torn from Saul here. Sin has consequences, and sin has consequences for Saul here. Saul is rejected from being king. And in chapter 15, verse 35, the text says that Samuel cleans up Saul's mess. He was supposed to wipe out the enemy and show no mercy. And Samuel, the prophet, hacks Agag, the enemy king, in pieces before the Lord. Again, it seems like Israel went too easy on their foes. They wanted to show mercy. God did not want them to show mercy here. Samuel corrects that error. He hacks Agag in pieces before the Lord. Now this applies to the church in our time. When I was uh, serving high school students, I would tell them, you are welcome here. Your sin is not welcome here. (laughs) You are welcome here. Your sin is not welcome here. And those boys knew how to sin, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Self-control. Something to work on for young men. But this church is a body. When there is sin in the body, it affects the whole body. You are welcome here. We're all going to sin from time to time. We all need correction from time to time. But there is a need for repentance when we sin, to confess our sin to one another and be healed. When there is known unrepentant sin in the church, you correct them over and over, and they continue on, they're doing harm to the body of Christ. They're doing harm to the church. And that is not welcome in the church. Now, the Lord sends Samuel to anoint David king. So we see that Samuel is not the coming king. He's anointing David. 
David has older brothers who are more royal in appearance than him. But the Lord tells Samuel, The Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. David's brothers looked more fit to be king. They were older. They were more mature. They were taller than him, bigger. But David is the right man in God's eyes. No human would have picked him based on his outward appearance. He's the little shepherd boy following after the sheep. He's not even there when Samuel comes to visit Jesse. If this was picking teams for football, David would have been the last one picked, the one nobody wanted, standing there at the end, last one. But when he comes into the house, the Lord says immediately, when Samuel looks at David, this is the one, this is the one I've chosen to be the shepherd of my people Israel. That's a pattern throughout Scripture. God often picks the person you would least expect, the person who seems least fit to do it. If you look at the apostles, he calls some fishermen out of the country, fishermen out of the country to go be his apostles. And he fits them and equips them to do the work. David's just a young shepherd boy, but he slays Goliath the giant with a sling and a stone. All the men of war are cowering in their tents as Goliath comes out day by day in his armor and taunts them. They cower in their tents, but David comes and he says, Who is this man to defy the armies of the living God? And David is willing to go into battle against this giant. And David slings a stone at this giant and hits him in the forehead. You might say he crushed his head with a stone. If you remember, I told you to look out for that language of crushing a head. He hits Goliath in the forehead with a stone, and Goliath falls forward on his face, dead. He falls into the dust, just like that serpent was cursed to go about on his belly and to eat the dust of the earth. And David cuts off his head. If you look carefully at this language, the text even says that Goliath has scales. And I can support this with more work. But the idea here is that Goliath is a picture of that serpent of old. He has armor of scales on, scale armor. And it's a word used for scales from reptiles, from Leviathan, from serpents. Goliath is depicted as a seed of the serpent here. And David crushes his head. So David conquers this giant with a sling and a stone while his older brothers and while Saul cower in their tents. David was just a little guy, a cute little guy, as one pastor said. God's people do not conquer on their own strength. They don't trust in their armor. They don't trust in their skill in war. They don't trust in their prowess. They don't ultimately trust in their skill, their battle acumen, their command of the army. They believe in God, and that's how they triumph over their foes. David believed in God. David conquers by faith. The Lord chose David not because he looked on his outward appearance, but because he looked on his heart. And what he saw in David's heart was a heart of faith. Faith in God. 
And that faith was not something that David could take credit for. Ephesians 2, verse 8 says, Faith is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Faith is resting on God and on his promise. Faith is not about you being strong. David wasn't this big, strong man of war. He'd been tested from his youth. But he wasn't the guy you would have picked to go up against Goliath. Far from it. Faith is about recognizing your weakness, your inability to do anything apart from the grace of God. As Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Faith is not a good work which we perform to obtain God's promise. Faith is a gift of God, the work of God in your heart. It's coming to rest and repose on Christ and all that he is, all that he is for us. Faith is not our work, it's God's work of grace in our soul. And that's what the Lord sees in David. David here displays a heart of faith. And the effect of faith in his life is for him to go out into battle and defeat this enemy who had taunted the rest of Israel for days. While the men of war cower in their tents with all their armor, David conquers. Christians, we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but we are those who believe to the saving of the soul. David is an example for us here. So now if you're following the story, we have two different kings here. Saul was anointed king, now David's been anointed king. And as you might imagine, that might cause some problems. And once David slays Goliath, he begins to become famous. He's become known throughout the whole land. And so Saul becomes jealous. He begins to persecute David. But David will endure to the end. And David grows stronger and stronger until finally he takes the throne in Israel after Saul's death. And David conquers Jerusalem. He drives back the Philistines. He brings the ark into Jerusalem with great fanfare. A house is built for David. 2 Samuel 7 says the Lord had given David rest from his enemies all around. So again, there's this idea of rest and peace and order coming out of this chaos in the land with their enemies surrounding them. David's dwelling in a house. He's got rest from his enemies. Israel has a king. But David at the same time, finds himself uneasy. He says, I'm dwelling in a house of cedar. I've got this nice house, but the Lord is still dwelling in the tabernacle. The Lord's dwelling in a tent. It's like David's dwelling in the governor's mansion, and the Lord is down at the campground. This doesn't seem right to David, and he wants to build the Lord a house. But the Lord has other ideas. He comes to Nathan the prophet and he says, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? The Lord has other ideas. In chapter 7, verse 11, the Lord says, I will make you a house. I don't need you to make me a house. I'm going to make you a house, David. Verse 12 says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And the Lord goes on to promise that David's kingdom will be established forever. His mercy will not depart from this king as it did from Saul. This is a promise to David. We're looking for a son to fulfill God's promises. A son born of a woman, a lion of the tribe of Judah, a prophet like Moses, a priest like Samuel, the king that Israel needed in the book of Judges. It seemed like David might be this son. He goes out to battle. He crushes the serpent, Goliath, with his scales. But it won't be David who is that king to come. The text says it will not be David, but David's seed. It will be David's son whose kingdom will be established forever. And that's why in the New Testament, when we come to that, they are looking for the son of David, this promised son from this book right here of Samuel. It will be David's son whose kingdom will be established forever. David could not give Israel lasting rest and peace. We'll see that moving forward. He couldn't build a house for the Lord by his own efforts. Before the end of this book, David will commit adultery and then kill the man, murder the man whose wife he slept with, Uriah the Hittite. He's not the king of righteousness. He's not the king of peace that Israel is looking for. He's a sinner like all of us. The Lord made David king and anointed him to be shepherd over his people Israel. But who would shepherd David? We see David himself needs a shepherd over him. And we all, like David, are like sheep gone astray. But Christ is the good shepherd the Lord gives to us. Christ ultimately will be the son of David promised. We've all honored ourselves, we've honored others rather than the Lord, like Eli did. We've all acted at one time or another or thought like Eli and his sons. We've kept back the best things for ourselves and rather than sacrifice them to God. We wanted to preserve our name or our reputation at the expense of God's name and his reputation. We've all lusted at times, we've all coveted, We've taken things that don't belong to us. we failed to restrain the sins of others. we failed to hack to pieces the evil in our midst at the right time. We've hated other people in our hearts like Saul hated David and wanted to kill him. We've been jealous of others. We've all thought too much of ourselves and too little of others and God. We've all been too cowardly at times and afraid to go into battle. But not Christ. Christ was not. He is that David to come who could not tolerate Goliath, that uncircumcised Philistine taunting the armies of the living God. He would not tolerate it. Christ came and crushed the head of evil, the head of that serpent on the cross. He slew death by death. 
He took your sin on himself. He died in your place. He died the death that you deserve for your sins. The church, if he did that for us, if he died for us, if he won that battle that we could never win, if he was that David that we could never be, if he gave us that peace and rest that we could never win on our own, how can we lack in zeal for living for him? If he took away our sins, covered us in his blood, put us in white garments, his own garments of righteousness, how can we not gladly live for him? If we are such great sinners and we have such a great Savior, how can we not live a life of gratitude? How can we fail to tell others about this one who has saved our souls? How can we leave giants out there stalking the land, stalking our cities, our churches, our own hearts, evil in our hearts that needs to be subdued? Christ died for us, that we might live for him. That we might have a faith that goes out to do battle for our Lord. So church, go and lay down your lives. Follow Christ. Go and proclaim the law and the gospel of this King who died that we might have life and who conquered in our place for our sake. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that Christ who did all those things that we have failed to do, all those things that we could never do because of our sin, and that sin nature that we all have. Father, we thank you for your grace that you offer Christ to us, an eternal life in him as a free gift to be received by faith. Father, let us believe your goodness, your promise, and rest on Christ. And give us grace to live a Christian life that honors you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.